and welcome back to another episode of the Water Women podcast. My name is Jill and I'm the host and creator of this podcast. And I'm joined today by Tamara. Hi, Tamara. How are you? Hi, I'm really good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so excited to have you on. How about you start out and tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you kind of got into the, how you kind of got to be a water woman? Well, first of all, I love the name water woman because it kind of tells exactly the story of who I am. And uh, well, I was born in Mexico and uh, I grew up in a place called Puerto Morelos. And this is a very small fishing village on the coast of Quintana Roo, so right in the Mexican Caribbean. And uh, as you can imagine, back then there wasn't really much around. We grew up as uh, nature kids and well, growing up in a coastal community just meant that you would be in the water since birth. So that's what happened. My parents lived there um, already for more than 40 years. They came from other places uh, around Mexico and they settled there. And so when I was born, I went right into the water and I never left. So I grew up uh, swimming, snorkeling, freediving, diving, like everything water related. And um, well, we didn't have a shopping mall or a cinema or anything like that. So every single afternoon I was just running to the beach after school and um, yeah, until sunset. And then our mothers would come and pick us up from the beach, like, come on, get in the shower. And then I would tell my mom like, mom, I don't have to shower because I've been in the water all day. I'm clean. <laughs> I used to tell my mom the exact same thing. Yeah, it's like, I don't get it. They want me to go in and shower, you know. Um, but uh, funnily enough, I never thought of the ocean or the water as something um, kind of special or something that I had to take care of. This came really much, much later in my life because all my life I just felt the ocean was part of me. So it wasn't like a like another persona out there that uh, deserved attention, you know? It's just uh, my, my backyard, my doorstep, my playground, everything that I knew and was familiar to me was in the ocean. Um, but after I grew up, because I grew up in this very simple place, I kind of had this uh, young person will of going away and going into like big cities and, you know, getting to know a different kind of life. And so I was uh, very determined to go to Europe when I finished my studies. And uh, I didn't want anything to do with conservation or nature or sciences at all. I I remember all those um, vocational meetings where they tried to fit you into some kind of career. And I was like, I don't want any of that. You know, I don't want to be a biologist. I already know about that. And I know many scientists and I don't want to be like them. Um, so that's how I ended up living in Belgium for a really long period of time after all. But uh, yeah, kind of running away from where I was. And when I was there, away from the ocean, away from the nature, away from everything I knew, then I realized that there's a lot that I never, well, that I always took for granted. You know, that um, that the reef, that the diving, the, the contact with the animals and with the wildlife was something that had been special that nobody, uh, 
well, not that nobody, but not a lot of people grow up in that way. So I started being aware of the fact that I had a special childhood and that I had been witness to many, well, processes, phenomena, uh, spectacles from nature that are actually foreign to most people, you know, like people that I met had never seen a sea turtle laying eggs. And I was like, what do you mean? Uh, <laughs> like, you just have to walk to the beach in the summer and it's full of turtles. And people will tell me like, I, I've never been to the beach, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, well, that was basically the discovery, you know? Um, of something that I knew very well already so it's all like falling back in love with the things that I um, grew up with and it's very interesting it's been enlightening and it's been truly uh, grounding for me that I can go back to the ocean in um, kind of uh, the remake of Samara you know because I worked in marketing before and in big companies and it was all very corporate and everything and then I kind of went back to be the hippie that I had been growing up with <laughs> so when did you go back like what made you uh what kind of was like the flip of the switch from you when you decided to leave marketing and instead go back and do go back to the ocean well I had been diving for a couple of years and actually when I moved to Belgium I started diving more in Mexico because when I would come back I was like oh, I want to go diving like I miss this so that's when I started like doing more courses and all and then I kind of um, it was very sudden and also people didn't expect me to do that so when I wanted to leave to Europe everybody said don't go never leave this is your home you're gonna be scared and cold like don't go to Europe and when I told everybody guess what guys I'm coming back and everybody said no don't come back you're better <laughs> off there you have a job you have a career an apartment a car holidays a good salary and everything and I just uh, basically I didn't see myself doing it forever I had like a, just like, you know, one day I woke up and I told myself I've done my dream. Like, this is exactly what I dreamt of. I speak five languages. I live in one of the most interesting cities in Europe. I have friends from all over the world. I have traveled extensively and I have a really nice quality of life. And now I'm just going to sell everything and I'm going to quit my job. And so that's what I did. <laughs> Um, I think that I was confronted with uh, numerous Belgian winters, very cold, very wet, rainy all the time, and I didn't find my place in nature over there. I was extremely happy with my career, with what I had done. Like, uh, yeah, Mexican girl goes to Europe and then she ends up, you know, being successful. It was a very nice story. But I felt that many things around me were artificial, like air conditioning in the office. And then everything was like gray and beige. And um, yeah, it just seemed like I wasn't going to thrive in this artificial environment. And that's what ultimately made me go into diving because I asked myself, well, what can I do from now on? What, where can I go? And honestly, I didn't see myself going to a mountain or 
learning to like ski, you know. Um, so the nature that was available around me or close by uh, wasn't anything that I knew or wanted to get to know at that point. It was more like a calling back home. Like, let's just go back to to what I love. And then I made a, still a little bit of a detour because I went to Indonesia to train as a dive master. And then I decided to come back to Mexico and do my instructor training here. Um, for a yeah, diving instructor. And from then, actually, it seems like I can tell the story in 10 minutes, you know, but it's been quite a while. It's gonna be six years since I came back. And um, when I started diving here as a new instructor, pretty much everything seemed like, um, like the two worlds, the diving and the actual marine world were separated. People, didn't know much about the environment and that's yeah um, yeah when you learn to dive you're kind of focusing more on your like skills and like how to do everything yeah it was very technical in that way and I was aware of it very early because I was interested in talking about the reef and the coral and do you know this do you know that and you know, and most people that had been living here and teaching for years before I started teaching didn't even know anything about corals or the mangroves. So I felt like I felt right in the middle of a place where nobody knew these things. And I kind of looked at myself and I asked, I asked Tamara, how do you even know those things? Like, where did you pick that up? Like how, you know? <laughs> And I realized that all of that language, all of that knowledge had been in my upbringing, like a, a very subtle kind of presence. And I had been around a big community of scientists and biologists and um, oceanographers. And without knowing it, I had like a, another language back there in my brain somewhere. And I could understand, you know, when, when I read technical documents or scientific papers and I couldn't understand what they were talking about. So I became fascinated and wanted to learn more and have been doing a lot of self-study uh, from that moment. Um, and yeah, it's been, it's been a beautiful journey. And fortunately, more and more people are doing it. More and more people are interested and uh, kind of aware of the environment and want to do something about it. Absolutely. So when you're instructing people, when you're instructing uh, dives and you want to focus on the eco-conscious aspect of it, how do you do that? And why do you think it's important for people to be uh, conscious while they're diving? Well, the first thing is that most scuba instructors don't see themselves as nature guides. So if you're going for like a hike and you hire a guide, you expect them to know quite a lot about the place they're taking you and um, the kind of birds you're going to see, the kind of trees that are around. And somehow we don't expect that from an instructor that is teaching diving so when I ask my colleagues are you a nature guide and they say no I'm a scuba instructor so they don't see themselves as, as someone who has to know about the environment they're diving in um, and basically 
the thing is that people come with different levels of knowledge or they have different backgrounds depends where they have grown up or where they uh, spent their childhood um, you can kind of have them relate to all those things and share stories and um, of course you can give them like a lecture and be very proper about it but I think that because people specifically come to learn the diving it's kind of difficult to find time within a um, work time schedule mm. to to give like a presentation on uh, marine ecosystems you know and it's not always um, very appreciated um, people think that we are spending time on unnecessary things or so I, I would say that the, the key thing here is that we need to integrate it as part of the training. And one of the things that helps a lot is making people excited for what they're going to witness and giving them the possibility to find something in that environment that relates to them. It's not easy because if someone grew up in a city far away, like imagine someone grows up in like Moscow and then they come to Mexico and you take them diving and you need to have them understand why the ocean is important for them. And sometimes it's like, why should I care? You know, it's 10,000 yeah, kilometers away from me. Yeah, it's far from me. I never see the ocean. I never um, have an interaction. So um I think we, we live in a moment where people have a lot of exposure on the internet and that's a good thing because we like we can share a lot of our daily life moments and people can follow you even if they are not nearby. Uh, but definitely also overexposes people and people don't know what information to choose from. Like they don't know what information to, to pick um, so I have been fortunate to be able to work in a very relaxed schedule that I set for myself, that I, I don't do very short courses like a lot of the dive shops. So like my, my basic training courses are four days instead of two. So I have time to introduce all of that into the training itself. Um, and ultimately it depends in the curiosity of the person. Some people when you tell them one fact then they keep asking and they are you know they want the information um yeah yeah they actually they feel you feel like they actually care about what you're telling exactly. them exactly yeah or they are completely surprised by what you're telling them and then that kind of feeds the curiosity and then it's easy uh but definitely i would say that older generations are more difficult to convince um or sometimes we don't have the credibility because we're like young people and we want to teach someone who has a long journey in diving and they don't give you a lot of credit you know or they're not like yeah giving you acknowledging your uh, your own background or what you have to tell them um but it's it's kind of uh yeah, as I said, it's a beautiful journey because it's one person at a time. And if one person cares, then I'm satisfied with my work. You know? 
If yeah, one if person, you get through to one person, that's it's almost worth it all the time. Exactly. Yeah, and that's actually uh, talking a little bit about the documentary. That's exactly how I feel about the work we did in plastic pollution. Um, obviously, I didn't know if people would like it. I didn't know if it was going to be full of impact or how far and how wide it would spread. And ultimately, that's how I felt in every single presentation. Uh, people came to talk to me to tell me that they have done this change in their lifestyle or they have taken this uh, idea into their business. And I just felt, okay, if one people changed from the audience, then it is working, you know? Yeah, I love the saying, like, we don't need one person doing it flawlessly. We need millions doing their best for like making yeah. those little changes. Do you want to backtrack and talk a little bit about the documentary you just mentioned? Tell us what that is and how you got involved with it. Yeah, of course. Uh, it was 2017, so I had only been working here for a couple of years. And uh, one day there was a colleague of us, a diver and people from the National Park in Puerto Morelos, they detected this uh, massive arrival of plastic in the ocean. Um, and the plastic was like a big, big cloud and it was all over the reef. Um, so I was completely shocked and I couldn't believe that the video was up there and everybody was just like watching it and commenting, but nobody was actually <laughs> doing something about it. And I couldn't stand it. I was like, okay, let's go back there and let's try and um, maybe very naive from my uh, part, but let's go and try and pick up the plastic. That was what I thought. I'm going to go there with like five people and we're going to pick it up. And we went there and we were on our boats and just jumped in the water and it just looked like clouds everywhere, just everywhere. Mm. It was uncontainable. We couldn't pick up like even a tenth of it. And we were there just with nets and bags and like everything we could. We were like seven people and we spent like hours just picking plastic bits, all sizes, all kind of trash, like all colors, all countries, um, it was super horrible. And when we went back on the boat, we were exhausted. Uh, we were like, you know, what are we even doing trying to contain this thing? It was massive. It was just kilometers of plastic. And we couldn't even see the difference of the things we had picked up, you know? We couldn't even see like a cleaner patch so that was really kind of a revelation, you know? Um, yeah, it's, it's really disheartening to go into the ocean or any beach, which is supposed to be this beautiful, like, utopia, like just this yeah. amazing habitat and see it just littered with plastic. It really exactly. like, it makes you sick. Yeah, and it just gave me kind of the... It was like the realization that I cannot fix it. I cannot yeah. pick it up. I cannot clean it. So even if there are people that are motivated and like eager to help, like we cannot do it. It's humanly impossible to pick the plastic up, to pick the trash that we've produced on this planet. Um, we might never manage to clean it up. 
this is what came to my mind you know and knowing that yeah. it is maybe an impossible task is what made me go in the direction of cutting it down like we can't pick it up but we can stop producing it and consuming it like crazy absolutely that reminds me there's this quote i heard i can't remember where otherwise i'd credit it but it's this amazing quote and it says like if your bathtub was overflowing yeah. or would you turn off the tap or would you start to mop it up because to exactly. mop it up while the tap is still running makes no sense like you need to stop exactly. the production before you can clean yeah and you know uh, i'm kind of known for the girl who doesn't do beach cleanups but it's not uh, it's not like i want to not do them you know i just think there's a lot of people doing beach cleanups and i can put my energy into trying to close the tap on the plastic yeah. um and also it's kind of harsh i agree that when you tell people this they think like you're a grinch or something but like people send me photos and say like look we picked up 300 kilos of trash today in the beach cleanup and i asked them how many people were there 45 people and i tell them do you know that the average mexican produces 500 kilos of trash a year so you didn't even pick up the amount of one person yeah and it's just like empty silence i don't want to talk to you you know it's too crude it's too yeah it's harsh to see the reality it's like harsh, that but it's the truth and it's the truth and we need to like feed it slowly to everybody so that we all kind of have this one moment that i had that day you know we can have yeah. a moment uh where it it kind of presents itself in front of my eyes and I have the open mind and the open heart to say okay what I'm doing is not helping and I need to change you know and a lot of people just tell me you know I didn't believe uh in that but then you told me this and I changed or you taught me this you know I used to teach um instructor candidates as well with uh, an IDC program and uh, I from the first day I worked in that place I told them well I'm not gonna have it we are gonna bring a refill uh, like a 20 liter bottle into the room and we're all gonna refill our bottles and we're gonna write down every single time that we make a refill during the three weeks of the course and yeah. then we're going to count them and by the end we were like eight people by the end of the program we had done like 700 refills and so we wow. took the the board because there was a board in which we just like do like a strike every time we refill and i yeah. told them well the, the count for three weeks eight people spending the entire day together is 700 bottles and they just fell off their chairs you know and this one guy he told me i thought we're going to have like 50 or a hundred, but not 700, you know? And I told them, do yeah. you know what 700 plastic bottles look like? What space does it take? Like 700 plastic bottles. Have you ever had 700 plastic bottles in your house? Because when you see it physically or when you try to imagine it in the shape of something else, then it kind of clicks, you know? Um, yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those things where you want to find a fine balance because obviously like, it's not going to help to pick up, like, you might not make a huge difference picking up this trash, but at the same time, like, don't just, if, if you're out there and you see this trash, exactly. don't just leave it. 
I think it's about not letting ourselves um, be fooled by the fact that picking it up once a month is enough. It's yeah, good to it's pick it up. Constant. Yeah, exactly. And I think it is a responsibility and a duty to pick it up. Like we have places where the turtles cannot nest anymore because it's full of trash and they cannot climb over it. So like, yeah, it is important and essential that we clean it up, but it cannot be the only thing we're doing. Um, yeah. At the rate at which we get information these days, it's just unforgivable that we ignore it. And uh, yeah, so I've been uh, kind of doing some of uh, some research and trying after that one uh, horrible day with the plastic, trying to see where where I can kind of make a make a change, you know. And uh, we had a, a very nice opportunity with a um, with an NGO called uh, Conservation Media Group. Um, they held a workshop in the U.S. in 2000, and uh, I think it was 2017. And uh, during the workshop, the topic was actually uh, plastic pollution in the ocean. And they're dedicated to bringing filmmakers and cinematographers onto kind of like a matchmaking uh, event with NGOs and people working uh, in environmental topics. So they recruit on one side all of the NGOs and on the other side all of the filmmakers and they assign every uh, person a match that will work with you to create the idea for a film. Um, they see film as a tool uh, not only to communicate but to steer and to provoke actions positive actions uh, towards the environment. And so um, I went there to the workshop in New Hampshire and spent a week uh, working on that kind of uh, topic. And then um, that's where I met Sylvia Johnson, who is the director of the Mermaids Against Plastic documentary. Um, and then uh, it was, I guess, like a year after uh, National Geographic opened the uh, well, there are grants for films in environmental topics, and there was a, a, it was a specific grant for uh, fighting plastic pollution. So Sylvia, yeah, Sylvia contacted us, and uh, we talked, and we decided this was just perfect for the well, the kind of the concept that we had talked about uh, during that workshop. And so we went for it and we created a project. We realized um, doing the research that there was no other documentary film about plastic pollution in the Caribbean at the time. So we were like uh, pretty sure that it was gonna have an impact. And uh, we waited a few months. And then at the end of August in 2018, uh, we got the news that we were selected to receive this film grant. So that was amazing. Um, none of us had worked with National Geographic and basically what they do is uh, they have a, a branch of Nat Geo that is called Inside Nat Geo. They fund independent uh, film projects and that gave us a lot of freedom to work in the concept uh, of our film and to basically, yeah, we, we could decide what we wanted to say and how we wanted to say it and where we wanted to film. And that was a super interesting, pro uh, super interesting uh, project and a 
well, for me, a first in documentary film because I was often helping the team to find locations and to make the plans and to obtain the film permits and all, all of that kind of field produ producer uh, role that I didn't even know existed at the time, you know. In the film, they credited me field producer and I was like, what is that? Well, everything you did in setting up the film shootings and everything, oh, really? Oh, um, good to know. Yeah, good to know. And it was super fun. It was uh, very also like a, a learning experience for me, seeing people who have worked in film for a long time. Um, and also, well, the, the funny things were actually uh, at the beginning of the of the making of the documentary, the crew had arrived and everything and we realized we're going to be on location for weeks. So we need to get food, you know, and then we all looked at each other like, oh, my God, we cannot get packaged food <laughs> because <laughs> this is a film about disposable plastic trash and we cannot just go to like a big store and buy like all of the juice and drinks and food, you know. So we yeah. were like, okay, what are we going to do? And we talked about it and we said, okay, no problem. We're going to get reusable containers and we're going to go to like the bulk store. And we bought all of our snacks like in bulk. And that was like also uh, a big realization for the crew because they were like, well, Alex, he works in New York. And we, he, when he arrives in a, in a shoot, there's like all kind of food from all of the shops. And it's, he's like, I just realized the amount of plastic we produce and the amount of trash that the, the film industry produces, you know. So it was very, very interesting to go through that process. Um, and the other thing was also that we wanted to film plastic. And sometimes we arrived at the locations and there was no plastic. So we were kind of disappointed and we were like, oh, well, uh, it, this is contradictory because I want it to be full of plastic for the film, but I'm kind of happy yeah. there's no plastic, but we can't film it. <laughs> so Very bittersweet because it's good there's no plastic right now, but it's also like I, I need there to be right now to prove yeah. my point. Like, well, well, what do we do now? <laughs> so... Um, we went also to some places where we thought there would be a lot of plastic. We arrived, okay, there's enough plastic for us to shoot. And then kind of we need to leave the location and we didn't prepare anything to to pick it all up, you know? So we filled the car completely with plastic, but we don't have like enough bags to like pick up everything we've been shooting all day. So that was also very gruesome, very heartbreaking, like we just don't have enough space in the car to bring the plastic out. Um, and so, yeah, it was, uh, it was really, yeah, like you said, bittersweet. And in the end, it's a completely positive experience. Um, and producing or making a documentary is very extenuating for everybody in the team. But the team was fantastic. It was uh, very full of energetic people. Uh, it was fun. It was funny. It was, you know, it felt like we were just a bunch of friends. Of course, now we are. But at that time, we didn't know each other that well. Uh, so it felt like we were on a road trip, like chasing the plastic aggregations and 
yeah, super, super fun experience. Yeah, so is that documentary out and can people go watch that now? Yes, we actually, uh, well, everybody has been uh, halted by the pandemic. So um, (laughs) we were actually very lucky because we decided to uh, do the premiere of the film in December. And then we had a lot of community screenings in January and February. And then we were supposed to continue the screenings when the COVID-19 epidemic hit. So we stopped all of that. And obviously we don't have any dates where people can resemble again. So we decided to do an online uh, premiere a couple of weeks ago. And the documentary is now available. And we do have a campaign that is in Spanish, but we do have a website where we have more information about the film and some other tools. Um, We've worked on recommendations for uh, people, for businesses, and for also policy making, because we've had some important changes in the meantime as well uh, here in our state of Quintana Roo. Uh, From the moment we started producing the documentary until the time when we screened it, uh, the law has been passed to ban all disposable uh, containers for food um, in restaurants or shops. So that was a really, really good uh, joint effort from many, many organizations and from the environmental agency here in Mexico. Um, And it's not an easy task as well, because Mexico is a big um, plastic producer. We have to Mm. look at it like it is, you know, there are entire um, factories and there's an entire industry that depends on the production of the plastic. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see how it phases out and start producing other types of materials and um, hopefully it will move slowly towards all the um, recyclable and compostable yeah. containers, you know. Um, the technology is available, so why not use it? Yeah, it is available, but I have to say in the region where we live, it is still not very common to find recycling plants. And some materials cannot be recycled locally, like glass. Mm glass bottles cannot be recycled here so they have to travel about 2,000 kilometers to find the next uh, glass recyclable facility so that's adding a big carbon footprint to the glass that you're recycling so I always tell people like if you're going to get a beer just get a can because aluminum is a lot more well, it's easier to recycle. It's uh, also got a value to it. So people um, trade aluminum and then they can also have a, a way of uh, sustaining themselves. Um, and all of the parts of an aluminum can can be recycled. So uh, yeah, it's also like you said before, you don't have to do everything perfectly, but when you get informed about the choices, then you can pick the thing that is uh, just a tiny bit better than what you were doing. And that has a lot of value. Absolutely. Don't often see it, but there's a lot of value of uh, making the right choices. Um, And also here in Mexico, um, there's a very low recycling rate. Um, I think generally in the country is about 14%, but then the regional ones, the places that are, uh, not in an industrial uh, area like where we live, 
um, it's super expensive and difficult to to do it, you know. So we have a very low rate over here where I live, like around 1% of the trash is recycled only. Um, so that is incredibly low, yeah. Uh, but well, the documentary basically has also been a tool for people to... Um, get those images in front of their eyes and help educate other people and help them get involved, um, help them boost their ideas. You know, I've walked into restaurants and people tell me, well, I own this restaurant and I want to be better, but I don't know how. Um, I have this one story um, in my village. Anthony has a great restaurant called La Sirena, which is the mermaid, by the way. Uh, unintendedly so he told me like I don't know how to do it and I asked him okay how do you pack your takeaway food and he told me there's a container and then there's a bag and I asked him do you think people would take the container away without the bag he's like yeah why not I'm like there you go so you cut bags from today only give the container and that saves you money and they that saves you like the bags you know and yeah. so it's little things like this. Now he's moved into like completely recyclable stuff and um, how do you say, uh, biodegradable. Uh, and he's a great example because he always uh, talks about how it's more expensive to actually have a better solution for the environment. So it costs you money uh, to be a better citizen, basically. Um, so we, well, I try to encourage people as well to do uh, joint efforts because if you're only one restaurant and you want to buy a big quantity, you're going to have a high price. But if we have 10 restaurants together and you get a group quote, then they're going to give you like, um, yeah, a better, a better price range, you know, and, uh, there's a lot of, uh, talk about the hygiene and why the water in Mexico is not so clean and all of that but I truly now believe that Mexico is a it's a modern country we don't drink water from a dirty tap you know we have potable water and we have drinking water and uh, purified ice and everything and so unless you're actually going to a very far away rural area water is good to drink though uh, you can trust the service providers filling your glass with a clean purified water and in the case of diving i have not been using disposable bottles since 2015 when i first opened my, that was amazing. my own business yeah and a lot of people told me back then people will never clients will never drink your water and so far, I've never had a client not drink my water. They all drink it. It's clean. Nobody has been sick. It's just a minimum of changing the habit, you know? Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you, Tamara. That was amazing and very, very educational and enlightening. If people want to follow along with you on social media and uh, the Mermaids Against Plastic, where can they do that? Well, we are a very small team, so we don't really have a Mermaids Against Plastic website for the film itself, but we have a website with all the information about the campaign, and it's called, in Spanish, Todos Contra el Plástico. I will uh, give you the link so that you can direct people there. 
Um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do it through the website or you can also contact me on Facebook or Instagram. It's um, Tenote underscore girl or Tamara underwater. I have two different accounts because I also do technical diving. So I'm kind of like half of my heart is underground and half of my heart is out in the ocean. Um, so I'll give you the links to all of that. And the film right now is open and free for everybody to share it. If there are educational guides or um, any kind of environmental training or capacity building, community screenings or any uh, plastic trash related uh, work that is being done out there and people who want to use the film for their programs, please feel free to send me an email. Uh, my email is info at tamaraunderwater.com and I can um, yeah, find out if I can give you a copy of the film so that you can have it. Uh, some people are using it for uh, schools, some people are using it for their own campaigns, and uh, ultimately that's what we wanted to do with the film to have people embrace it and people adopt it as their own because it's not a film about me it's not the story of tamara what i want is people to identify with the film and to say that's how i felt when in my own hometown i saw this or that's how i feel heartbroken when i see the trash lying around so in that way um the film will just cross borders and go anywhere. Uh, it is in its original version in Spanish. It has also been translated, well, not translated, um, subtitled in English, and we're working on the French uh, subtitling as well so that it can go further. Wow, that is awesome. I will definitely share the links to all of that in the description of the podcast and also on all of our social media so you guys will be able to find Tamara and... Uh, hopefully the documentary very easily yeah 